I love me NGOs, I do. Oh, I love them. Oh, you, Mr. Krabs now. <laughs> <laughs> Close enough. NGOs are my favourite. Do you love NGOs as well? No. No, neither do I, actually. I actually really hate them. Yeah, I, I think that they... I, I don't understand how they can always get charitable status. These, these people are leeches. Yeah, they they're a be- useless, useless pit of public funds and public time wasting that, worst of all, outside of being funded and staffed by blood-sucking vampires, present, except, present company accepted, yeah, yeah. of course. Steady on. Um, they actually get stuff done. Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing about them. because they I, are- I, I would like to add a caveat as well. Like, giving clean water to children, um, like children's cancer charities. You know, I, I'm not against those. It's Although I could be ones. argued out of the position. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> I could be argued out of it. But either way, NGOs, as they operate within the West, are terrible. What they do is they come up with legislation because politicians are too lazy to do it themselves, and then they give it over to the politicians, and the politicians are too lazy or weak-willed to read through it because Ron Paul didn't get his way, damn it. It should be one page per piece of legislation. That's it. Ugh. They get handed a, a three million page manuscript for Shakespeare's lost plays, and they'll just sign their name at the bottom of it because some legal advisor told them this will be good for the country, maybe, somehow. Ron Paul is just too good for this world. He, he really is. God bless you, Ron Paul. Um, <laughs> and I just thought I'd go over some, one of the NGOs that operates in England, and so we can use it as a case study the kind of people who operate and staff these NGOs and the kinds of shoulders they rub and the kinds of laws that they put forward and the ideas that they put forward, because sadly, they're far too influential. Before I do that, I'm going to direct you all to the website where we have uh, the latest episode of Epochs uh, 119, where Bo and Carl were talking about the fall of Rome. Mm-hmm. And if collapse is coming, can it please come soon? If it's going to put Harry out of his misery, if it's going to happen, I want to be a chieftain of a local tribe warring against the other tribes in the ruins of what was Britain so that we can reclaim our country and build it back up again without any bloody NGOs. And Harry is very prepared because he is very primitive after all. It's true. Have you seen this brow? Anyway, <laughs> this, is, this is a brow. You don't want to take a headbutt from this noggin. I tell you that. Anyway, there is a, a person I'm quite uh, friendly with online who has his own substack called reactionary reading law. That's the handle that he goes over. Mm-hmm. They had this interesting article on his, uh, on his substack from a few months ago where he's talking about how legislation works and how passing legislation works in the UK that really highlights some of the ways that the NGOs work. And it's basically just a summation of what I was saying a moment ago. So primary and secondary legislation is often quite difficult to draft and implement as members of parliament seldomly have the time or expertise to read or draft legislation. I like the... <laughs> you're I right spilled there. water over myself, don't mind me. That's all right. You were laughing at the idea of any parliamentary, uh, parliamentarian having expertise in the first place, weren't you? And them doing work, yeah. Yeah, they are all a bunch of lazy, incompetent buffoons. This is true. Civil servants and bar- parliamentary draftsmen often do help MPs draft primary and secondary legislation. However, the time pressures and difficulty of drafting complex and well-thought-out legislation is often too much for parliamentary draftsmen and civil servants. So often, government policy and primary, blah, blah, may originate from a third party. In modern politics, it's think tanks, policies, uh, policy institutes, and lobbyists are often the primary movers in creating legislation and policy, because this is how democracy works. You vote for your representatives, and the representatives wait for the guys who are either their best friends or the guys giving them the biggest paychecks to hand them a piece of legislation 
and then they argue about it performatively on television for a few weeks before it gets signed into law and you find that you are both penniless and homeless because of how this legislation has worked for you. Why do all these large companies donate to politics? Are they just really passionate about the democratic process or, or are they getting something in return? These people have even red lock, I've heard. Oh, I, I know what you're referring to. It's an, it's an old meme. You might not get it. <laughs> just said I got it. <laughs> so as, a, as an example, he gives, Net Zero was given its first legal mandate in the UK by way of Climate Change Act 2008. This act imposed a duty on the Secretary of State to take steps to ensure that net zero is achieved by 2050. After this legislation was passed, the role of de uh, deciding on policies that will enable the government to achieve it fell on the think tanks and policy institutes. The Grantham Research Institute, GRI, on climate change and the environment are commissioned to research and propose policies to achieve net zero. The GRI has played an important role in drafting and planning policies that are meant to lead to the finalization of net zero. Solutions proposed by these NGOs have been widely adopted and enacted into law. Since 2005, politicians of all parties have shown a readiness to adopt it. Uh, uh, anything, really, proposed by the NGOs and think tanks. Every single one of them, including the ones that are thought to be radically libertarian, these refrain from any blood spurting out of your nose or steam emitting from the ears here, uh, are directly supporting net zero. Uh, so, for instance, there is a significant number of Boris... Uh, so he says here, think tanks and other NGOs can exact a lot of influence over government policy and legislation because of the revolving door syndrome. Revolving door is the practice where those who work for the think tanks, NGOs, and lobbyists frequently switch between working with national bureaucracies and even the legislative government. Significant number of Boris Johnson's 2019 cabinet had previously worked for the International Energy Agency, Preeti Patel, to name one. Despite the IEA... Well, you said her name, then. Preeti Patel... <laughs> I thought it only appropriate. Should I have done gave a it head something. bob as well? You gave it something there, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Despite the IEA being regarded by The Guardian as radically libertarian, they would honestly describe Stalin as radically libertarian. How dare they describe that organization as radically libertarian? Yeah, they've been feverish in proposing transport policies for net zero. So I'd imagine they probably have something to do with 15-minute cities and all of that rubbish. We need to ban cars by 2030, say the radical libertarians. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, after this policy proposal was made, it was then brought into law by the Conservative Party whilst they were in government. Thank you, Conservatives. Very cool. And there's, there's loads of these different organizations. So we had a few named there. We had the Grantham Research Institute and the International Energy Agency. So there's a few case studies that you can look into in your own time to see what kind of legislation that they've put forward. But there's one that I thought I would look into very briefly, just because I saw this on Twitter the other day from Mercian Bob, a fellow proud Mercian, God bless to you, sir, who uh, said, this is your brain on Blairism. And this is a man called, let me just remind myself of his name, Sunder Katwala very British name, who runs a think tank, NGO slash charity, because like you say, they always get charitable status, don't they? Because they are a, what charity exactly is that they're doing? Providing public policy for politicians. Just make, make it all private. Go on. I mean, they're supposed to be neutral institutions in the first place. We're just a bunch of talking head think tank guys who go in and we all just scientifically discuss the ideas on a neutral plane, and then we come up with policy as a result of our own scientific discussion. It's no, like us no, becoming a charity. It's just like, come on, we obviously have opinions about politics. We're not 
neutral. We have our own beliefs. Yeah, obvious. And you would need anybody with a brain would be able to look at that and go, okay, they're going to have their own biases that's going to be put into the sort mm-hmm. of policies that they put forward. Obviously, but we're supposed to pretend like all of these organizations are just perfectly neutral and just want what's best for the country. That's their only bias. Is they love Britain too much. <laughs> and we can tell that because his NGO is called British Future. So he wants to look into the future so we can see a glorious future where all of the British people which we don't really know what those are because Britain isn't a real identity because don't you know that Britain isn't a real identity? It's made up of Anglo-Saxons and Celts and Picts and Jutes. No such thing as being English or Scottish or Wales, which is why it's a propositional identity. So if you come here tomorrow and get yourself a passport, congratulations, you can claim just as much heritage to this land as I can. Thank you very much. He's one of those types. So yeah, thousands of years of my ancestors living here, which yep. I know they have. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's just a passport, mate. Oh, sorry. Just a passport, bro. Don't worry about it. But of course, we have to celebrate their diversity. That's always how it was. So he, this is a screenshot from an interview. And you can, I, I didn't want to watch the interview, but you can find transcripts of it. And it's really remarkable. Because uh, he goes on like this. He says, so if identity in society can divide, then maybe we should avoid identity. And maybe instead we should say, don't we all love the NHS? That's right. How you, about no? You get your passport and you don't pledge allegiance to the crown, the king. You don't have to do anything like that. You don't kneel before the king. You kneel before uh, a pigeon crap encrusted statue of nigh bloody Bevan and you pledge, pledge your allegiance to the NHS. Can we just get, get it over just with? Just like, yeah, I, I pledge my allegiance to a Kafka-esque nightmare that presents itself as health. And that's not to say that the people working for the, like the actual on the ground people who do the, the actual administration of actual health related stuff, which is very bureaucratic. I don't know why I'm using that language. The people doing the good stuff. Yeah, would you know, probably be able to do much better stuff and in yes. a much more efficient manner in a more private system than what well we've done. got at the moment. You can speak English better than me, apparently. There we go. <laughs> yeah, they do good work. Obviously, there are thousands and thousands of people within the NHS who are actually dedicated to helping people. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that they aren't. The NHS in the first place, I will have to say, was an idea that I can see the merits of. But as it exists right now, no, it needs to go or be massively downsized. Well, the problem is that it's socialized, isn't it? And therefore run inefficiently. If it's run for profit, it gets run efficiently and therefore the systems work better. There's no incentive. It also just under the under the state of mass immigration that we have at the moment, it was never built for the kind of population density and size that we have right now, which is why you have ridiculous 18-month waiting lists. Mm. But of course, I think that any state-owned healthcare is an abomination. Just throwing that out. But I, either way, it's just vile and disgusting to me, the idea that we can throw away our thousands of years of heritage and instead orientate the entire British identity around this... Socialism. Yeah, the socialism, essentially, a form of socialism that cropped up in, what, 1948, was it established, I believe? Something like that, yeah. yeah. That's, that's it. Uh, this man, to be able to, uh, also comes out with this kind of, uh, British Future also comes out with these kinds of ro- reports. Britain has made progress on race, but more must be done. Wind, wo- wind rush report fires. Now, this came from British Future, ahead of its 75th anniversary of the arrival of the HMT Empire Windrush, which was not something that the government asked for. This was not the narrative that you have been sold. What happened was uh, it was coming back from the Caribbean, had a lot of space available on the ship, and so they decided to 
sell cabin space for a, uh, for a discounted price to some of the local Caribbean people and then brought them along. This was so unplanned and the government was so against it that they deliberated on turning the ship around before it got here so that they could drop these passengers off somewhere else or just go all the way back to the Caribbean to drop them off. But no, this has become another part of the foundational myth of England. We have our NHS and we have our beautiful Windrush generation who would never, we never would have rebuilt England if we didn't have the Windrush generation. Despite the fact that we re- rebuilt it before they even came here. Well, details, petty, petty details. Of course, we don't I should have known better about that. But British Future did a think tank survey, uh, finding that about eighty percent of respondents feel much more needs to be done to combat racism. Now, let's take a look at some of the images that they have from the people responding to this. So we have uh, there's Sunder himself, who is mm-hmm. an ethnic minority. Okay, so he has no bias in this whatsoever. Uh, ethnic minority, okay. Mm-hmm. Ethnic minority, and I can imagine that all the rest of them were ethnic minorities. So we've got uh, Joel Jean Marie, eighteen-year-old history. Joel Jean Marie, yeah. Uh, bloody bloody blah, black British. Okay, they're going to be a lot of. So what we found out here is that in this survey is that we asked ethnic minority groups if they think that they should be given more privileges by the government, mm-hmm. and they said yes. Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly. No way. I never could have predicted this. And for such incredible research, this man is paid hundreds of thousands of pounds a year from the British uh, taxpayer's pocket, of course, because this kind of important work wouldn't be done if it wasn't paid by us. Do people want free money? I need a hundred grand for asking this question. Uh, I know. This is remarkable. Are you, uh, you know, I am a defender of science when it needs to be done. But this kind of social science... I wouldn't call this science. This is just grifting. Yeah, this is obvious, obvious grifting. And I also found a book review for his book, How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Our Country Can End Our Very British Culture. Now, this is going to be really fun because there are some remarkable admissions in here. So first of all, you know, How to Be a Patriot, I'm seeing this as a... Being a patriot means cheering on the destruction of your own people. Is that an actual quote? No, okay. no, but it's what it really all comes down to. Uh, be, being a patriot is cheering on demographic replacement. That's okay. what it always comes down to. But the article says, I don't really know Sunder Katwala personally, but I have been following him since his long days at the Fabian Society. Oh, it's... He's an actual just Fabian communist. <laughs> he was the head of the Fabian Society for a while. It's like a It's a, It's like a, a punchline. It's like a punchline to a joke, isn't it? Scratch every leftist and you find a communist. Yep. Catwala described, and also probably something hidden on their hard drive, but that's neither <laughs> here nor there. Catwala describes himself as a child of the NHS. That's right. We're all children under the NHS. Technically, I was born in a hospital. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, not so, technically. So, does that mean I'm a child of the NHS as well? There we go. His father was a doctor recruited from India and his mother was a nurse who moved to the UK from Ireland. So these are all more reasons to scratch, scrap the NHS because it is a funnel for migrants to be recruited through. You bring them over because we've just got all these positions in the NHS that need to be filled. We're being overwhelmed by mass migration. So we need mass migration to fill all the positions or else we'll be overwhelmed. Do you know what the private sector sometimes does? It pays people to go through university education and then they have a job lined up at the end of it. Mm. I mean, they sponsor people, they have a contract with them, and then you go and do the job. But have, kind you, of cons- means- have you considered that that doesn't 
that means you wouldn't be stealing people's money to do that. Yeah, that's kind of the point. People would have engaged in voluntary contracts to do that. You mean that people can have a free exchange of goods and services without government coercion? No way. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'll carry on. His point is that we must proceed from where we are now, and that we is an inclusive word that encompasses all of us. But it doesn't. It doesn't really, does it? Because the we doesn't include people like you or I, because this man's identity is from the foundation adversarial to ours. He will cheer on anything that disenfranchises us because us wanting to protect our own culture is and country is white supremacy. And of course, he's against white supremacy and ethno-nationalism and any nasty word that you want to attach to having sovereign borders. Mm -hmm. So it's not we, it's not inclusive, it's us versus them when it comes to absolute grifters like Sunder. I mean, he literally went out and did a survey where he said, you black person, do you want more money from the government? Yes, they do. And then he turns around and goes to the government and say, well, you've just got to do it now. Look at this. This is, we're, get, we're creating some major racial tensions if we don't give the, all the gibs that we can, really. Yeah, give me all your money or I'm going to punch you and say you are being racist to me. It's yeah, basically that. that's what it always comes down to. Um, and once again, uh, this review goes on and says, you know, what we need is all of the civic Englishness because Englishness is no longer an ethnic category. It's now just a civic identity, which is fun how that works, isn't it? I wonder if they'd do the same in Nigeria or if we'd be called racist for saying, well, we need to embrace civic Nigerianism. We need civic n- Indianism. That's what we need. I need to go to India now, and I can be just as Indian as anyone else. I'd like to see, see them say that about Israel, <laughs> especially with the Labour Party's track record. We- I get the feeling that the accusations of anti-Semitism would come abound, wouldn't they? Are we throwing out an open borders for Israel stance? Is that what's being said here? Okay. <laughs> uh, but either way, he says a greater sense of civic Englishness might help reduce resistance to immigration. And there it is. Once again, mm-hmm. this is not an inclusive we. This is a screw you, give us money. This is a screw you, your heritage is an economic zone that we can use to extract resources and then leave. You're, co- you're colonists. That's what you are. You are absolute colonists and you're disgusting. And uh, in case you think to yourself, well, this is just one guy. He can't have that much influence, can he? Well, this is an event report from the British Future website talking about a reception and a panel that they did back in February of 2022. And uh, guess who's here? Is it Sunder? Well, Sunder's right there on the left. You can see that straight away. So the British Future director was joined by Ryan Shorthouse, who chaired this panel discussion between three of the authors who contributed essays to their collection on race and diversity in England. The equalities campaigner Akila Ahmed, former special advisor Salma Shah, and Sandra Kerr, race director for business in the community. Salma, who advised Sajid Javid as home secretary, wrote about increasing equality and access to the establishment in her essay for the collection. So about why people who aren't from here deserve more from the government, as she was advising Sajid Javid, whose family is not from here as he was working as Home Secretary where he has a big say in what happens to our borders while he was saying that we need to embrace diversity and also she's on panels taking advice from working with a literal member, former leader of the Fabian Society. Okay. Who'd have thought? I mean... Yeah, this is a farce. This is a complete farce (laughs) and it needs to go. 
Thank you very much for watching this segment from the podcast Lotus Eaters. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you feel like supporting the work that we do, then you can subscribe to our website for as little as £5 per month to get access to all of the premium work that we do on there, including the most recent book club that I've been part of, Julius Eveler's Fascism Viewed from the Right, where I had a very interesting discussion with Carl. If you'd like to catch up with what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis, you can follow my social medias on Twitter at Harry Lotus Eater and also on Getter at Harry Lotus Eater. Thank you again for watching and take care.